Welcome to Improbable Walks, the podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold, and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the city of light. Every episode, we step into history by strolling down a different block of the city, exploring buildings and people of the past and of the present. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your time and ears. If you're just discovering the podcast, please check out my website, lisapassel.com, for photos, previous streets, and more information. You can encourage this podcast by subscribing, which lets you know when our new monthly episode is posted and helps Improbable Walks to find new listeners. Today, we're strolling back along the Grand Boulevard. As you'll remember from December's part one of my Grand Boulevard stroll, the term Grand Boulevard, Grand Boulevards, refers to a broad crescent half-circle of wide streets on the right bank, arcing loosely from the Bastille to the Arc de Triomphe. Boulevard de Bonne Nouvelle, Poissonnière, Montmartre, des Capucines, des Italiens, du Temple, de la Madeleine... These wide boulevards were originally created when Louis XIV replaced city ramparts in 1670, creating four kilometers of promenade planted with trees. Later, in the 1860s, these boulevards were reimagined as shopping and dining avenues, a crucial part of Baron Haussmann's plan for the expansion and renovation of Paris. These stylish promenades are permanently associated with the 19th century's great boom, when the city was inventing itself as a modern city. In the middle of the 1800s, the city of Paris was growing with one million inhabitants, a megacity by 19th century standards. Bustling with people, these boulevards became a thriving place of culture and cafes, business and tourism. The Paris urban landscape that we know and love today really emerged during this period, where the streets of the city became a showy place of consumption and display, as well as places of community and social engagement. Today, for our walk, let's begin near the great Opéra Garnier and its busy metro stop, Opéra. We're across the street, walking away from the elegant Café de la Paix, which I talked about in part one of the Grand Boulevard. The Café de la Paix was once popular with famous writers and composers, but now it's more of a tourist destination. We're starting on the corner of Boulevard des Italiens, and we're walking east, towards Bastille, away from the Arc de Triomphe, if that helps to visualize the direction. We'll stroll past expensive chain shops, shiny cafes, and several cinemas until we come to 20 Boulevard des Italiens, which was once known as La Maison Dorée, the Gilded House. This impressive building takes up the whole block in front of us. Today, it's part of the large international bank BNP Paribas. But this location was once an elegant mansion. The famous fashionista Thérèse Cabarrus lived here for a few years. Mistress to several revolutionary politicians, Thérèse befriended the young, ambitious Napoleon Bonaparte, but was not interested in becoming his lover. 
Instead, she encouraged her friend Rose Beauharnais to get involved with the young Corsican. And of course, Rose Beauharnais is remembered in history because she eventually married Napoleon. She's remembered as Josephine Bonaparte. In fact, Josephine likely attended some of the fabulous parties that Therese held at this address. Once Therese had moved out, the Maison Doré was remodeled and eventually became a famous café, the Café Hardy, which was bought in 1836 by the Hamel brothers. The Hamels already owned the Café de Chartres. You might remember the Café de Chartres today as the Grand Véfour in the Palais Royal. We talked about the Palais Royal back in our second ever episode in July 2020, Saint-Georges in the Palais Royal. The Hamel brothers rebuilt the restaurant here in the Gilded House, and because it was so glitzy, that's why it became known as that Gilded House, La Maison d'Arre. It was called that by the public because it was so over the top. The exterior of the building is still basically the same as it was then. So imagine the scene when the Maison d'Arre was an over-the-top, expensive café restaurant. Amazing wine, private upstairs cabinet, i.e. private dining rooms. Well, wealthy Parisians, Eurotrash, royalty, and all the see-and-be-seen cultural crowd love to be seen here. In part one of my Grand Boulevard, I talked about the location for the first Impressionist exhibition. In April 1874, when the first Impressionists were desperately looking for a space to show their rejected paintings. This is when their friend, the photographer Nadar, loaned them his superbly located photo studio on Boulevard des Capucines in the Grand Boulevard neighborhood. Now we're looking at the location of the last of the Impressionist exhibitions, because in 1886, the eighth and final Impressionist show was here in five rooms on the first floor dining room of the Maison Doré. The Maison Doré was also beloved of writers who liked to eat here mostly so they could be seen in the expensive location. But several also used the restaurant as an important location for pivotal scenes in their novels. Both Honoré de Balzac and Marcel Proust wrote scenes for this building. If you're a fan of À la recherche du temps perdu, you'll recognize the Maison Dorée. Writer Alexandre Dumas also had his newspaper office, Le Mousquetaire, in the building here on the ground floor in the year 1853. As I discussed in part one, this Grand Boulevard neighborhood was a real media hub for the 19th century. Photographers and filmmakers, newspaper writers, magazine editors, media personalities, and creators all worked and partied in this area. Dumas is particularly interesting. Alexandre Dumas was born in 1802 and became the best-selling author of books like The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers, which came out in 1844. Dumas even lived in this neighborhood. One of his most famous addresses was just up the street. Dumas was prolific, popular, and his bestsellers came out as assembly line works. What I mean is, Dumas used a factory-like approach. He assembled the novel's idea, then hired a team of collaborators to write and develop the chapters. He edited the final product before it was published. 
Readers knew this at the time. His novels were giant bestsellers full of daring-do sword fights and big hats. But what we've often forgotten, even though his Parisian readers of the time knew and gossiped about him, was that the melodramatic events in his novels were inspired by his larger-than-life father, whose very existence challenged so many societal norms of the time and even today. Because Alexandre Dumas' father was Revolutionary General-in-Chief Thomas-Alexandre Dumas, Davy de la Paletterie, and General Thomas Alexandre was born enslaved in what's now Haiti. As an adult in France during the French Revolution, General Thomas Alexandre Dumas became the only high-ranking black general ever to lead a mostly white army, until Colin Powell in the late 20th century. The writer Alexandre Dumas inherited his name and his swagger from his swashbuckling father, whom he idolized. And where does the name Dumas come from? General Dumas used the name of his mother because his French plantation-owning father didn't want him dragging an aristocratic name in the dirt. As a result, we remember the name Dumas, even though its meaning is now forgotten. Dumas most likely means from the house because the general's mother was an enslaved housemaid. It's also possible that Dumas is a westernized version of her African patronym. At any rate, as a child, General Dumas was educated in what's now Haiti, but his father didn't free him, so he was educated but enslaved. When he was 14 years old, his father sold him to a captain sailing for France. And when the boy arrived in France, his father bought him back from the captain. The teenager was now free because he was in France, but when he went into the army, he wasn't welcome to enlist as an officer because his father refused to allow him to use his aristocratic name. Instead, Dumas began as a lowly private and worked his way up, winning astonishing battles for the revolution, inspiring the troops in Egypt. In fact, General Dumas ought to be remembered as a quintessential French hero, but today he's only beginning to be mentioned in official histories. This is largely because Napoleon, jealous little racist man that he was, went out of his way to destroy the general's reputation. If you want to learn more about the Dumas story, check out the general's biography by Tom Rice. It's called The Black Count, and it's an extremely readable history book. So let's get back to Alexandre Dumas, best-selling author and serious partygoer, the revolutionary general's only son. When Paris-based writer Alexandre Dumas has a son, he names him, of course, Alexandre Dumas after his father, which means we have three men with essentially the same name. Why? I believe the repetition of the name is intentional and very political. The general emerged from one of the bleakest corners of French colonial history, Saint-Domingue, in what's now Haiti. The general survived the malevolence of his aristocratic white French father, and he took the name of his enslaved black mother. As General Dumas, he became a leading light in the French army, his name itself a rebellion. And his son, shared his name, Alexandre Dumas, and used this name to become a superbly successful writer. 
And then the general's grandson, Alexandre Dumas' son, had the same name. And he went on to become an incredibly successful playwright. The sheer existence of the name is a rebellion against the powers that be. It's a revolutionary name. No wonder Dumas, the novelist, set up his office here for a while in this beacon of money and prestige on the Boulevard des Italiens. He very well knew that names have power, and these boulevards were all about power, prestige, and pride. The Maison Dorée was not the only extravagant café located on this corner. If we cross the street to number 13 Boulevard des Italiens, this was once the location of the famous Café Anglais. Among other extravagances, the Café Anglais once served a courtesan on a plate naked. This was the Paris-based English courtesan Coral Pearl. She had herself carried in on the silver platter to win a bet that the gentleman at dinner wouldn't be able to carve up the next dish. And yes, of course, she won the bet. Now to our left, if we look up towards the north at the corner of Rue Le Pelletier, we're looking at the old location of the opera. The old building's now gone. That opera was replaced by the glorious Opéra Garnier. I talked about the building of the Garnier opera in part one of the Grand Boulevard, so check that out if you haven't listened to it already. But there's a serious reason why the old opera house was replaced. Number 11, Rue Le Pelletier, was a crowded location. Now it's just apartments and shops. It's not worth visiting particularly. But back in the 1820s, this was temporary, crowded, very narrow. Well, the opera house opened in 1821 after the Duc de Berry had been assassinated outside the previous building. And when you look at some of Edgar Degas' famous ballerina paintings, you will actually be looking at some of them set at Le Pelletier in the now-vanished practice rooms. Now, in January 1858, while approaching this old opera address, an Italian anarchist tried to assassinate Napoleon III and his Empress Eugenie. 156 people were injured, 8 people died, But the emperor and the empress survived because the carriage was iron-plated. No kidding, bulletproof vehicles were a thing even back then during the Second Empire. Directly following the explosion, the emperor attended the opera anyway because he was determined to show that everything was fine. He knew that rumors would say he was injured or dead unless enough people saw him alive and well at the opera. The following day, the emperor announced plans for a new opera house, something grand, something modern, something with big, safe streets surrounding it. This safety in size, light, and width, this was another important element that made the Grand Boulevard popular with Parisians of the era. And it's this opera building competition that Charles Garnier, a working-class architect who was only 35 years old, won. The new building took ages, partly because while the building was under construction, the Second Empire collapsed, Paris was besieged by the Prussians, and then the Commune broke out. It's difficult to build a grand marble-covered building under those conditions, but the opera succeeded, as we've seen. Meanwhile, the old building over here burned down in 1873. 
Since there's not much to see to our left, instead we're going to turn right or south off the Boulevard des Italiens and go down the Rue des Marivaux. Almost immediately, you'll see the small posters on the building of the Opéra Comique. This is a lovely late 19th century theatre, similar in era to the Opéra Garnier, but oddly it feels much older, being smaller and more intimate. Let's walk down the block to the Place Boildieu, logically named for a famous 18th century Parisian opera composer. The playwright Alexandre Dumas-Fils was actually born in an apartment here on this place. That is the grandson of General Dumas, and the son of best-selling novelist Alexandre Dumas. Now, Dumas-Fils was a famous author in his own right. He wrote the very popular tragedy La Dame aux Camélias. He was also elected to the Académie Française, as was his father, and he was a campaigner for women's rights, possibly because he was the son of an unmarried woman and was well aware of the difficulties women faced as creators. He was close friends with actress Sarah Bernhardt and with writer Georges Sand. The Opéra Comique was established over 300 years ago, and for much of that time it has been here in this location, on land donated for free by the Duc de Choiseul, in exchange, the Duke requested a lifetime box seat so he could watch the operas. The current building was completed in 1898, after two previous buildings had burned down. This current building was radical when it opened because it was entirely electric, much safer than the old hazardous gas lighting or the candles of the old days. Walking Around the corner here gives you an idea of the narrow streets which once surrounded the old opera house. Such a contrast compared to the spacious boulevards. But it's well worth walking here, because the facade of the Opéra Comique is a little gem, and the interior is even nicer. So if you have the chance to see a show here, by all means, go. For a fun virtual visit to the Opéra Comique, check out my website. I'll put a link there. Among other great premieres, this is where Georges Bizet's Carmen was first performed. And I'm going to see Lully's opera Armide here later this year. This is an opera that was composed for the Sun King. Louis XIV chose the somewhat absurd storyline, and it premiered in 1686. Now, technically, the opéra comique is a genre of musical performance. It's not comedy. The word comique refers to the fact that opéra comique includes spoken words and songs, unlike pure opera, which is only sung. To wrap up our Grand Boulevard stroll, let's go back up to the Boulevard des Italiens and wander along until we come to the Boulevard Montmartre. Here we can go along the busy boulevard and think about Émile Zola's description of the boulevardier, the flâneur. This is Zola describing the boulevards in his novel The Masterpiece, written in the 1880s. They appeared to take up the whole breadth of the boulevard. The gang usually spread themselves out like that as friends tacked themselves on until it looked like a horde on the warpath. As they squared their broad young shoulders, these 20-year-olds took possession of the pavement. They picked up Paris calmly in one hand and put it in their pocket. I do love that idea that as we walk through Paris on these boulevards, we're picking up streets of the city very calmly and putting them in our pocket forever to remember. 
So I'll leave you strolling here, heading towards the wonderful Passage des Panoramas, which is part of next month's Improbable Walk. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Check out images for this improbable walk on my website, lisapassel.com. Many thanks, as always, to my tiny podcast team, Bremner Fletcher for tech help and David Simmons for the atmospheric accordion theme music. And thank you for listening. Until the next time, we go walking into Paris history together. <laughs>